0: Chapter 20 of Work A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Work A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott. Chapter 20 At 40 NEARLY TWENTY YEARS SINCE I SET OUT TO SEEK MY FORTUNE. IT HAS BEEN A LONG SEARCH, BUT I THINK I HAVE FOUND IT AT LAST. I ONLY ASK TO BE A USEFUL, HAPPY WOMAN, AND MY WISH IS GRANTED, FOR I BELIEVE I AM USEFUL. I KNOW I AM HAPPY. CHRISTIE LOOKED SO AS SHE SAT ALONE IN THE FLOWERY PARLOUR ONE SEPTEMBER AFTERNOON thinking over her life with a grateful, cheerful spirit. Forty today, and pausing at that halfway house between youth and age, she looked back into the past without bitter regret or unsubmissive grief, and forward into the future with courageous patience. For three good angels attended her, and with faith, hope, and charity to brighten life, no woman need lament lost youth or fear approaching age. Christie did not, and though her eyes filled with quiet tears as they were raised to the faded cap and sheathed sword hanging on the wall, none fell, and in a moment tender sorrow changed to still tenderer joy as her glance wandered to rosy little Ruth, playing hospital with her dollies in the porch. Then they shone with genuine satisfaction as they went from the letters and papers on her table to the garden, where several young women were at work with a healthful colour in their cheeks that had been very pale and thin in the spring. I think David is satisfied with me, for I have given all my heart and strength to his work, and it prospers well, she said to herself. And then her face grew thoughtful, as she recalled a late event which seemed to have opened a new field of labour for her, if she chose to enter it. A few evenings before she had gone to one of the many meetings of working women, which had made some stir of late. Not a first visit, for she was much interested in the subject and full of sympathy for this class of workers. There were speeches, of course, and of the most unparliamentary sort, for the meeting was composed almost entirely of women, each eager to tell her special grievance or theory. Any one who chose got up and spoke, and whether wisely or foolishly each proved how great was the ferment now going on, and how difficult it was for the two classes to meet and help one another in spite of the utmost need on one side and the sincerest good will on the other the workers poured out their wrongs and hardships passionately or plaintively, demanding or imploring justice, sympathy and help, displaying the ignorance, incapacity and prejudice, which make their need all the more pitiful, their relief all the more imperative. The ladies did their part with kindliness, patience and often unconscious condescension, showing in their turn how little they knew of the real trials of the women whom they longed to serve, how very narrow a sphere of usefulness they were fitted for in spite of culture and intelligence, and how rich they were in generous theories, how poor in practical methods of relief, One accomplished creature, with learning radiating from every pore, delivered a charming little essay on the strong-minded women of antiquity. Then, taking labour into the region of art, painted delightful pictures of the time when all would work harmoniously together in an ideal republic, where each did the task she liked and was paid for it in liberty equality and fraternity unfortunately she talked over the heads of her audience and it was like telling fairy tales to hungry children to describe as passia discussing greek politics with pericles and plato reposing upon ivory couches or hypatia modestly delivering Philosophical lectures to young men behind a Tyrian purple curtain, and the ideal republic met with little favor from anxious seamstresses, typesetters, and shop girls, who said ungratefully among themselves, That's all very pretty, but I don't see how it's going to better wages among us now. Another eloquent sister gave them a political oration, which fired the revolutionary blood in their veins, and made them eager to rush to the State House en masse, and demand the ballot before one-half of them were quite clear what it meant, and the other half were as unfit for it as any ignorant Patrick bribed with a dollar and a sup of whiskey. A third well-wisher quenched their ardour like a wet blanket by reading reports of sundry labour reforms in foreign parts. Most interesting, but made entirely futile by difference of climate, needs and customs. She closed with a cheerful budget of statistics, giving the exact number of needlewomen who had starved gone mad, or committed suicide during the past year. The enormous profits wrung by capitalists from the blood and muscles of their employers, and the alarming increase in the cost of living, which was about to plunge the nation into debt and famine, if not destruction generally. When she sat down despair was visible on many countenances, and immediate starvation seemed to be waiting at the door to clutch them as they went out, for the impressible creatures believed every word and saw no salvation anywhere. Christie had listened intently to all this, had admired, regretted, or condemned as each spoke, and felt a steadily increasing sympathy for all and a strong desire to bring the helpers and the helped into truer relations with each other. The dear ladies were so earnest, so hopeful, and so unpractically benevolent, that it grieved her to see so much breath wasted, so much goodwill astray, while the expectant, despondent, or excited faces of the workwomen touched her heart. For well, she knew how much they needed help, how eager they were for light, how ready to be led if someone would only show a possible way. As the statistical extinguisher retired, beaming with satisfaction at having added her might to the good cause, a sudden and uncontrollable impulse moved Christie to rise in her place, and asked Leave to speak. It was readily granted, and a little stir of interest greeted her, for she was known to many as Mr. Powers's friend, David Stirling's wife, or an army nurse who had done well. Whispers circulated quickly, and faces brightened as they turned toward her, for she had a helpful look, and her first words pleased them. When the President invited her to the platform, she paused on the lower step, saying with an expressive look and gesture, I am better here, thank you, for I have been and mean to be a working woman all my life. Hear, hear, cried a stout matron in a gay bonnet and the rest endorsed the sentiment with a hearty round. Then they were very still, and then in a clear, steady voice, with the sympathetic undertone to it that is so magical in its effect, Christie made her first speech in public since she left the stage. That early training stood her in good stead now, giving her self-possession power of voice, and ease of gesture, while the purpose at her heart lent her the sort of simple eloquence that touches, persuades, and convinces better than logic, flattery or oratory. What she said she hardly knew. Words came faster than she could utter them. Thoughts pressed upon her, and all the lessons of her life rose vividly before her to give weight to her arguments, value to her counsel, and the force of truth to every sentence she uttered. She had known so many of the same trials, troubles, and temptations that she could speak understandingly of them, and better still, she had conquered or outlived so many of them, that she could not only pity but help others to do as she had done. Having found in labour her best teacher, comforter, and friend, she could tell those who listened that, no matter how hard or humble, the task at the beginning, if faithfully and bravely performed, it would surely prove a stepping stone to something better, and with each honest effort they were fitting themselves for the nobler labour and large liberty God meant them to enjoy. The women felt that this speaker was one of them, for the same lines were on her face that they saw on their own. Her hands were no fine lady's hands, her dress plainer than some of theirs, her speech simple enough, For all to understand, cheerful, comforting, and full of practical suggestion, illustrations out of their own experience, and a spirit of companionship that uplifted their despondent hearts. Yet more impressive than anything, she said, was the subtle magnetism of character, for that as a universal language which all can understand they saw and felt that a genuine woman stood down there among them like a sister, ready with head, heart, and hand to help them help themselves, no offering pity as an alms, but justice as a right. Hardship and sorrow, long effort and late one reward, had been hers they knew. Wifehood, motherhood, and widowhood, brought her very near to them, and behind her was the background of an earnest life, against which this figure, with health on the cheeks, hope in the eyes, courage on the lips, and the ardour of a wide benevolence warming the whole countenance, stood out full of unconscious dignity and beauty, an example to comfort, touch, and inspire them. It was not a long speech, and in it there was no learning, no statistics, and no politics. Yet it was the speech of the evening, and when it was over no one else seemed to have anything to say. As the meeting broke up, Christie's hand was shaken by many roughened by the needle, stained with printer's ink, or hard with humbler toil. Many faces smiled gratefully at her, and many voices thanked her heartily. But sweeter than any applause were the words of one woman who grasped her hand and whispered with wet eyes, I knew your blessed husband, he was very good to me, and I've been thanking the Lord he had such a wife for his reward. Christie was thinking of all this, as she sat alone that day, and asking herself if she should go on, for the ladies had been as grateful as the women, had begged her to come and speak again, saying they needed such much a mediator to bridge across the space, that now divided them from those they wished to serve. She certainly seemed fitted to act as interpreter, between the two classes, for from the gentleman her father she had inherited the fine instincts, gracious manners, and unblemished name of an old and honourable race. From the farmer's daughter, her mother, came the equally valuable dower of practical virtues, a sturdy love of independence, a great respect for the skill and courage that can win it such women were much needed and are not always easy to find for even in democratic america the hand that earns its daily bread must wear some talent name or honor as an ornament before it is very cordially shaken by those that wear white gloves perhaps this is the task my life has been fitting me for she said a great and noble one which i should be proud to accept and help accomplish if i can others have finished the emancipation work and done it splendidly even at the cost of all this blood and sorrow i came too late to do anything but give my husband and behold the glorious end. This new task seems to offer me the chance of being among the pioneers, to do the hard work, share the persecution, and help lay the foundation of a new emancipation whose happy success I may never see. Yet I had rather be remembered as those brave beginners are, though many of them missed the triumph, than as the late comers will be, who only beat the drums and wave the banners when the victory is won. Just then the gate creaked on its hinges, a step sounded in the porch, and little Ruth ran in to say in an audible whisper, "'It's a lady, Mamma, a very pretty lady. Can you see her?' "'Yes, dear,' Ask her in. There was a rustle of sweeping silks through the narrow hall, a vision of a very lovely woman in the doorway, and two daintily gloved hands were extended as an eager voice asked, Dearest Christie, don't you remember Bella Carroll? Christie did remember, and had her in her arms directly utterly regardless of the imminent destruction of a marvellous hat, or the bad effect of tears on violet ribbons. Presently they were sitting close together, talking with April faces, and telling their stories as women must when they meet after the lapse of years. A few letters had passed between them, but Bella had been abroad and Christy too, busy living her life, to have much time to write about it. Your mother, Bella, how is she, and where? Still with Augustine, and he you know is melancholy mad, very quiet, very patient, and very kind to every one but himself. His penances for the sins of his race Would soon kill him if mother was not there to watch over him. And her penance is never to leave him. Dear child, don't tell me any more. It is too sad. Talk of yourself and Harry. Now you smile. So I'm sure all is well with him. Yes, thank heaven, Christie. I do believe fate means to spare us, as dear old Dr. Shirley said. I never can be gay again, but I keep as cheerful and busy as I can, for Harry's sake, and he does the same for mine. We shall always be together, and all in all to one another, for we can never marry and have homes apart, you know. We have wandered over the face of the earth for several years, and now we mean to settle down and be as happy and as useful as we can. That's brave. I am so glad to hear it, and so truly thankful it is possible. But tell me, Bella, what Harry means to do. You spoke in one of your first letters of his being hard at work studying medicine. Is that to be his profession? Yes, I don't know what made him choose it, unless it was the hope— that he might spare other families from a curse like ours, or lighten it if it came. After Helen's death, he was a changed creature, no longer a wild boy, but a man. I told him what you said to me, and it gave him hope. Dr. Shirley confirmed it as far as he dared, and Hal resolved to make the most of his one chance by interesting himself in some absorbing study, and leaving no room for fear, no time for dangerous recollections. I was so glad, and mother so comforted, for we both feared that sad trouble would destroy him. He studied hard, got on splendidly, and then went abroad to finish off. I went with him, for poor August was past hope and Mamma would not let me help her. The doctor said it was best for me to be away, and excellent for Hal to have me with him, to cheer him up, and keep him steady, with a little responsibility. We have been happy together, in spite of our trouble, he in his profession, and I in him. Now he is ready, so we have come home, and now the hardest part begins for me. How, Bella! He has his work and loves it. I have nothing after my duty to him is done. I find I've lost my taste for the old pleasures and pursuits, and though I have tried more sober, solid ones, there still remains much time to hang heavy on my hands, and such an empty place in my heart that even Harry's love cannot fill it. I'm afraid I shall get melancholy. That is the beginning of the end for us, you know. As Bella spoke, the light died out of her eyes, and they grew despairing with the gloom of a tragic memory. Christie drew the beautiful, pathetic face close upon her bosom, longing to comfort yet feeling very powerless to lighten Bella's burden. But Christie's little daughter did it for her. Ruth had been standing near regarding the pretty lady, with as much wonder and admiration as if she thought her a fairy princess, who might vanish before she got a good look at her. Divining, with a child's quick instinct, that the princess was in trouble— Ruth flew into the porch caught up her latest and dearest treasure and presented it as a sure consolation with such sweet goodwill that Bella could not refuse although it was only a fuzzy caterpillar in a little box i give it to you because it is my nicest one and just ready to spin up do you like pussy pillars and know how they do it?' asked Ruth, emboldened by the kiss she got in return for her offering. "'Tell me all about it, darling,' and Bella could not help smiling, as the child fixed her great eyes upon her, and told her little story with such earnestness, that she was breathless by the time she ended. "'At first they are only grubs, you know,' and stay down in the earth. Then they are like this, nice and downy and humpy when they walk, and when it's time they spin up and go to sleep. It's all dark in their little beds, and they don't know what may happen to em, but they are not afraid, cause God takes care of em. So they wait and don't fret, and when it's right for em. They come out splendid butterflies, all beautiful and shining like your gown. They are happy then, and fly away to eat honey, and live in the air, and never be creeping wounds any more. That's a pretty lesson for me, said Bella softly. I accept and thank you for it, little teacher. I'll try to be a patient pussy pillar, though it is dark and I don't know what may happen to me, and I'll wait hopefully till it's time to float away a happy butterfly. Go and get the friend some flowers, the gayest and sweetest you can find, Pansy, said Christie, and as the child ran off, she added to her friend, Now we must think of something pleasant for you to do. It may take a little time, but I know we shall find your niche if we give our minds to it. That's one reason why I came. I heard some friends of mine talking about you yesterday, and they seemed to think you were equal to anything in the way of good works. Charity is the usual refuge for people like me, so I wish to try it. I don't mind doing or seeing sad, or disagreeable things, if it only fills up my life and helps me to forget. You will help more by giving of your abundance to those who know how to dispense it wisely, than by trying to do it yourself, my dear. I never advise pretty creatures like you to tuck up their silk gowns and go down into sloths and arms with the poor who don't like it any better than you do, and so much pity and money are wasted in sentimental charity. Then what shall I do? If you choose, you can find plenty of work in your own class, for, if you will allow me to say it, they need help quite as much as the paupers, though in a very different way. Oh, you mean I'm to be strong-minded— to cry aloud and spare not, to denounce their iniquities and demand their money all their lives. Now, Bella, that's personal, for I made my first speech a night or two ago. I know you did, and I wish I'd heard it. I'd make mine tonight if I could do it as half as well as I'm told you did," interrupted Bella clapping her hands with a face full of approval. But Christie was in earnest, and produced her new project with all speed. I want you to try a little experiment for me, and if it succeeds, you shall have all the glory. I've been waiting for someone to undertake it, and I fancy you are the woman. Not everyone could attempt it, for it needs wealth, and position, beauty, and accomplishments, much tact, and more than all a heart that has not been spoiled by the world, but taught through sorrow how to value and use life well. "'Christy, what is it? This experiment that needs so much, and yet which you think me capable of trying?' asked Bella, interested and flattered by this opening." I want you to set a new fashion. You know you can set almost any you choose in your own circle, for people are very like sheep, and will follow their leader if it happens to be one they fancy. I don't ask you to be a de and have a brilliant salon. I only want you to provide employment and pleasure for others like yourself who now are dying of frivolity or ennui? I should love to do that if I could. Tell me how. Well, dear, I want you to make Harry's home as beautiful and attractive as you can, to keep all the elegance and refinement of former times, and to add to it a new charm by setting the fashion of common sense." INVITE ALL THE OLD FRIENDS, AND AS MANY NEW ONES AS YOU CHOOSE, BUT have it UNDERSTOOD THAT THEY ARE TO COME AS INTELLIGENT MEN AND WOMEN, NOT AS PLEASURE-HUNTING, BOW AND BELLS. GIVE THEM CONVERSATION INSTEAD OF GOSSIP, LESS FOOD FOR THE BODY AND MORE FOR THE MIND, THE HEALTHY STIMULUS OF THE NOBLER PLEASURES THEY CAN COMMAND instead of the harmful excitements of present dissipation. In short, show them the sort of society we need more of, and might so easily have if those who possessed the means of culture cared for the best sort, and took pride in acquiring it. Do you understand, Bella? Yes, but it's a great undertaking, and you could do it better than I, Bless you, no. I haven't a single qualification for it but the will to have it done. I'm strong-minded, a radical, and a reformer. I've done all sorts of dreadful things to get my living, and I have neither youth, beauty, talent, or position to back me up, so I should only be politely ignored if I tried the experiment myself. I don't want you to break out and announce your purpose with a flourish, or try to reform society at large, but I do want you to devote yourself and your advantages to quietly insinuating a better state of things into one little circle. The very fact of your own want, your own weariness, proves how much such a reform is needed. There are so many fine young women longing for something to fill up the empty places that come when the first flush of youth is over, and the serious side of life appears. So many promising young men, learning to conceal or condemn the high ideals and the noble purposes they started with. Because they find no welcome for them. You might help both by simply creating a purer atmosphere for them to breathe, sunshine to foster instead of frost to nip their good aspirations. And so, even if you planted no seed, you might encourage a timid sprout or two that would one day be a lovely flower or a grand tree all would admire and enjoy. As Christie ended with the figure suggested by her favourite work, Bella said, after a thoughtful pause, "'But few of the women I know can talk about anything but servants, dress, and gossip. Here and there one knows something of music, art, or literature, but the superior ones are not favourites with the larger class of gentlemen.' Then let the superior woman cultivate the smaller class of men who do admire intelligence as well as beauty. There are plenty of them, and you had better introduce a few as samples, though their coats may not be of the finest broadcloth, nor their father's solid men. Women lead in society, and when men find that they can not only dress with taste, but talk with sense. The lords of creation will be glad to drop mere twaddle and converse as with their equals. Bless my heart, cried Christie, walking about the room as if she had mounted her hobby and was off for a canter. How people can go on in such an idiotic fashion passes my understanding. Why keep up? an endless clatter about gowns and dinners, your neighbour's affairs, and your own aches, when there is a world full of grand questions to settle, lovely things to see, wise things to study, and noble things to imitate. Bella, you must try the experiment, and be the queen of a better society than any you can reign over now. It looks inviting, and I will try it with you to help me. I know Harry would like it, and I'll get him to recommend it to his patients. If he is as successful here as elsewhere, they will swallow any dose he orders, for he knows how to manage people wonderfully well. He prescribed a silk dress to a despondent, dowdy patient once, telling her the electricity of silk was good for her nerves. She obeyed, and when well-dressed felt so much better than she bestirred herself generally and recovered. But to this day she sings the praises of Dr. Carroll's electric cure. Bella was laughing gaily as she spoke, and so was Christy as she replied. That's just what I want you to do with your patients. Dress up their minds in their best, get them out into the air, and cure their ills by the magnetism of more active, earnest lives. They talked over the new plan with increasing interest, for Christie did not mean that Bella should be one of the brilliant women who shine for a little while and then go out like a firework, and Bella felt as if she had found something to do in her own sphere, a sort of charity she was fitted for, and with it a pleasant sense of power to give it zest. When Letty and her mother came in, they found a much happier looking guest than the one Christy had welcomed an hour before. SCARCELY HAD SHE INTRODUCED THEM WHEN VOICES IN THE LANE MADE ALL LOOK UP TO SEE OLD Hepsey AND Mrs. WILKINS APPROACHING. TWO MORE OF MY DEAR FRIENDS, BELLA, A FUGITIVE SLAVE AND A LAUNDRESS. ONE HAS SAVED SCORES OF HER OWN PEOPLE, AND IS MY PET HEROINE. THE OTHER HAS THE BRAVEST, CHEERIEST SOUL I KNOW, AND IS MY PRIVATE ORACLE. The words were hardly out of Christie's mouth when in they came, Hepsy's black face shining with affection, and Mrs. Wilkins, as usual, running over with kind words. My dear Critter, the best of wishes and no end of happy birthdays. There's a trifling keepsake. Tuck it away, and look at it by me by. Miss Sterling. "'I'm proper glad to see you looking so well. "'Aunt Letty. how's that, darling child? "'I ain't the pleasure of your acquaintance, miss, "'but I'm pleased to see you. "'The children all sent love, likewise, Lisha, "'whose bones is better since I tried the campfire and red flannel.' "'Then they settled down like a flock of birds "'of various plumage and power of song, "'but all amicably disposed.' and ready to peck socially on any topic which might turn up. Mrs. Wilkins started one by exclaiming as she laid off her bonnet, "'Sakes alive! There's a new picture. Ain't it beautiful?' "'Colonel Fletcher brought it this morning. A great artist painted it for him, and he gave it to me in a way that added much to its value,' answered Christie with both gratitude and affection in her face, for she was a woman who could change a lover to a friend, and keep him all her life. It was a quaint and lovely picture of Mr. Greatheart, leading the fugitives from the city of destruction. A dark wood lay behind, a wide river rolled before, Mercy and Christiana, pressed close to their faithful guide, who went down the rough and narrow path, bearing a cross-hilted sword in his right hand, and holding a sleeping baby with the left. The sun was just rising, and a long ray made a bright path athwart the river, turned great-heart's dinted armour to gold, and shone into the brave and tender face, "'that seemed to look beyond the sunrise. "'There's just a hint of Davy in it "'that is very comforting to me,' said Mrs. Sterling, "'as she laid her old hands softly together "'and looked up with her devout eyes full of love. "'Dem women ought to been black,' murmured Hepsy, "'tearfully, for she considered David worthy of a place "'with old John Brown and Colonel Shaw.' The child looks like Pansy, we all think," added Letty, as the little girl brought her nosegay for Auntie to tie up prettily. Christie said nothing, because she felt too much, and Bella was also silent because she knew too little. But Mrs. Wilkins, with her kindly tact, changed the subject before it grew painful, and asked with sudden interest, when be you going to hold forth again, Christy? Just let me know beforehand, and I'll wear my old gloves. I tore my best ones all to rags clapping of you. It was so extra good. I don't deserve any credit for the speech, because it spoke itself, and I couldn't help it. I had no thought of such a thing till it came over me all at once." and I was up before I knew it. I'm truly glad you liked it, but I shall never make another, unless you think I'd better. You know I always ask your advice, and what is more remarkable, usually take it,' said Christy, glad to consult her oracle. "'Hadn't you better rest a little before you begin any new task, my daughter?' "'You have done so much these last years. You must be tired,' interrupted Mrs. Stirling, with a look of tender anxiety. "'You know I work for two, mother,' answered Christie, with the clear, sweet expression her face always wore when she spoke of David. "'I am not tired yet. I hope I never shall be, for without my work, I should fall into despair or ennui. There is so much to be done, and it is so delightful to help do it, that I never mean to fold my hands till they are useless. I owe all I can do for in labour, and the efforts and experiences that grew out of it. I have found independence, education, happiness, and religion. Then, my dear— "'You are ready to help other folks into the same blessed state, and it's your duty to do it,' cried Mrs. Wilkins, her keen eyes full of sympathy and commendation as they rested on Christie's cheerful, earnest face. "'If the spirit moves you to speak, up and do it without no misgivings. I think it was a special leading that night, and I hope you follow.' for it ain't everyone that can make folks laugh and cry with a few plain words that go right to a body's heart and stop there real comfortable and filling. I guess this is your job, my dear, and you'd better catch hold and give it the right turn, for it's going to take time and women ain't stood alone for so long they'll need a sight of boosting. There was a general laugh at the close of Mrs. Wilkins' remarks, but Christy answered seriously, "'I accept the task, and will do my share faithfully with words or work, as shall seem best. We all need much preparation for the good time that is coming to us, and can get it best by trying to know and help, love and educate one another,' as we do here. With an impulsive gesture, Christy stretched her hands to the friends about her, and with one accord they laid theirs on hers, a loving league of sisters, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, each ready to do her part to hasten the coming of the happy end. "'Me too!' cried little Ruth. And spread her chubby hand above the rest, a hopeful omen, seeming to promise that the coming generation of women will not only receive but deserve their liberty by learning that the greatest of God's gifts to us is the privilege of sharing His great work, each ready to do her part to hasten the coming of the happy end. End of chapter 20. End of work. A story of experience by Louisa May Alcott.